Would you join me again uh, before we begin this message, this sermon this morning, and uh, just again a time of commitment to the Lord in prayer. So let's, let's pray. Uh, Father, we are in desperate need of, of you this morning. Lord, we, we gather in this place confessing to you in these moments as we just sang about that we are a sinful people. And we have not gathered in this place this morning because we're perfect. We have not gathered in this place this morning because we have it all together. We are broken people. But we praise you, Lord, for your mercy that is so good and that you have picked us up out of the depths of sin, and death, and destruction, and through Christ and Christ alone have given us life eternal. And so we cling to that truth this morning as we come together as your people to sit under your word. Lord, help us to understand your word rightly. Help us to be guarded from error. I pray that you would allow me to speak your truth as you would have it to be proclaimed in this place this morning and that people's lives would be changed, not because of anything I have said or done or we have done in this place, but simply by your word proclaimed and your spirit moving in this place. So we ask, Lord, that you would redeem us, that you would save us, that you would sanctify us, that we would indeed respond to this text this morning as your spirit convicts us. That if there is sin in this place, that, there, that we, would, we would repent and return to you anew. There's someone in this place who's never put their trust and faith in Jesus, that today would be the day of salvation. And so, Lord, in these moments, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable before you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Uh, quarrels are a part of life as a whole. There is no relationship that we have in this life that is free from quarreling. Uh, even the most intimate relationships that we have with our spouse, we know full well that there are seasons of quarreling even inside the, the marriage relationship. Even the people we love most in this world, our children, our parents, uh, we, we fight with sometimes. For some of you, if you're just really honest this morning, that was the car on the way to church this morning. There was quarreling going on. It's, it's a part of life. It's natural um, for us to quarrel. Uh, and this is true in the life of the church as well. Quarreling exists in the life of the church. You would be hard-pressed to find a regular churchgoer who has not found themselves in the midst of some sort of quarrel. Again, we are broken. We are fallen people. This is the reality of the world that we live in. But the source of quarrels is always the same. It is selfish pride. It is an ego of wanting what we think is best. And so as we consider quarrels in the life of the church from 1 Corinthians this morning, I think it's good for us to, to remember that when we look to self, we will be divided. 
But when we look to Christ, we will be united. In our text this morning, I believe there is an overarching truth that a unified church rests in the power and wisdom of God. If you would, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, as we look at verses 10 through 31 this morning. And as we walk through this passage, and we consider this theme, a unified church rests in the power and wisdom of God, we're going to find three parts to the text this morning. First, we're going to see a request. Second, we're going to see a reminder. And thirdly, we're going to see a reason for boasting. And so first, let's consider a request for unity. We see this in verses 10 through 17. If you would follow along with me, beginning in verse 10. Paul says to the church in Corinth, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each, of you, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power I mentioned last week, in every one of Paul's letters to the churches, he mentions church unity. Uh, unfortunately for the church in Corinth, we know that of all the churches Paul wrote to, they had the most drama existing in the life of the church. They were, they were doing a lot of things really bad. And it does not bode well for them that in the very beginning of his letter to them, Paul gets straight to the point, you are divided. And so he appeals to them. He gives them and us this morning an earnest request and encouragement. And you see it there in verse 10, three encouragements. First, he wants them to agree. Now, last week, we looked at the word that said he wanted the church in Philippi to think the same thing. This word means that he wants them to speak the same thing. That in their doctrine and in their attitudes and standards, even their lifestyle, they would be in agreement with one another of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Secondly, he encourages them and employs them to not be divided, that there would be no divisions among them. This word literally means uh, to tear. It's the word that we get for schism in the English language. But figuratively, Paul has in mind here that they would not have differing opinions. And then finally, he pleads with them to be united in mind and judgment. He wants them to genuinely 
be united, not that they would say they agree in person and then in the quiet corners of a secret place in whispers say something otherwise, but that there would be genuine agreement in the life of the church. Now, that does not mean that we have to agree on every issue, but that we can be unified under what is the prime issue of the church. And as we consider this, and as I mentioned in my introduction, this is a human impossibility. There is no group of people who can gather together on a regular basis and do this in and of themselves. And yet, when Scripture commands us to be about doing something, we can know and trust that God gives us in His Spirit, He divinely provides for us perfectly what we need to achieve this. And so if the charge for us this morning is to agree and not be divided and united in mind, we can trust that the Spirit will give us what we need. We must then rely on the Spirit to lead us. A good rule to think of in the life of the church as we consider these words, and a good guide for us, uh, is a phrase that maybe is is one that you are familiar with. It, It says that in essentials, unity In non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. I think this is a very helpful thing for us to consider because in the life of the church, there are varying issues that we need to address. We tend to think of them as three levels. The first level would be the essentials of the faith. Uh, Things in the life of the church, in the life of the person that we must affirm if we are to truly be followers of Christ. There are things that we must affirm about the Christian life in order to be truly saved, like that Jesus is fully God and fully man, that he died on a cross and rose from the grave. These are essentials, first-level issues. Then we have second-level issues, which are issues that we can disagree on uh, but still be united under the banner of the gospel. A good example of a second-level issue would be baptism. We have dear brothers and sisters in the Presbyterian church who affirm the gospel, they proclaim the gospel, they preach the gospel, but they have a different view uh, than we do as Southern Baptists on baptism. And so it's in our name. We are Baptists. We are about uh, credo-baptism. We believe that baptism is reserved for those who have come to faith in Christ. Presbyterians have a different view. They believe in paedo-baptism. So it would be hard for a Southern Baptist to be a member of a Presbyterian church. But we can be unified for the gospel. Third-level issues, though, are issues that are important, but we can disagree on and still keep fellowship. An example of this would be end times? How do you feel about the end times? How do we interpret the end times? We are not going to see eye to eye on this, but we can gather together in a local church in agreement on the main issues. We can disagree here. And then I would, I would say that sometimes there's even fourth level issues in the life of the church, issues of just function and how we, we flow and, and the administration of the church. Those things Uh, are less important, but still important to the life of the church. In all of these things, though, we must agree and not be divided. Again, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. So why is it that Paul makes this appeal? Well, the reason for his appeal, we see right away, very straightforward, in verses 11 and 12, there is quarreling, there is strife among them, and it centers around these groups that have formed uh, to follow certain men. We have a group that follows Paul, uh, 
Uh, they're potentially sympathetic to his Gentile ministry. We have a group that follows Apollos, who was an eloquent preacher. They're potentially really in, into preaching. They like to sit under preaching, and so they're, they're on team Apollos. Uh, there's the group that follows Peter. We know Peter's ministry to the Jews, so these people are potentially more uh, sympathetic to the Jews. Uh, and then we have a group that follows Christ, and yet Paul is saying to them here, you say you are of Christ, but really your motives are not any better than the people in the other groups because it's, you're saying you're of Christ, but really you're just focused about yourself. You're using Christ's name to make yourself look better. And so these cliques have formed in the life of the church, and each of these groups have three things in common. First, they have this supposed leader. The reason I say uh, supposed leader is because uh, I don't believe Paul and Peter and Apollos were even aware necessarily of these groups or, in, or encouraging these groups. These people were just gathered together in a like-mindedness under the name of these men that they felt would approve of their uh, position, their, their views. Secondly, these groups have an agenda. And then thirdly, they have ultimately antagonistic feelings toward the other groups. And so Paul's response to the quarreling, you find it there in verses 13 through 17, is first he says, Christ is not divided, brothers and sisters. He asks it there with a hypothetical question. We know the answer, though. Christians are all one in Christ. We talked about this last week, that what unifies us is the gospel. Christ is not divided, indeed. Secondly, Paul says he's not flattered. He's like, look, I don't want a team, Paul. Like, I don't want you to follow me on Facebook. That's not what I'm looking for. We, as modern-day pastors, could learn something from Paul's heart here. It's not about the social media following for the pastor. It's not about popularity and fame and fortune. It's simply about being faithful to Christ. And Paul is not flattered. And finally, he says, I simply came to you to preach the gospel. And he says they're not with worldly cleverness, not with worldly wisdom, but with simple words to proclaim the power of the gospel. It's interesting that he, he says that the preaching of the word is more important to him than baptism. Baptism is surely important in the life of the church. It's something that we should agree on as the local church. And yet Paul says here the primary work that he was about was preaching the gospel. And so as we consider this, we need to understand that we are one in Christ and should do nothing to disrupt the unity that we seek and find in this place. Christ alone deserves our unwavering loyalty. I want to illustrate this by just looking over a few verses to chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 1, I think we see a good picture of what Paul is talking about here. He says in verse 1 of chapter 3, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh." For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, 
Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. It is hard for us to really know if we are participating in a group or a clique that has formed like this. We really genuinely have to search our hearts and say, Lord, show me if there is evidence of this in my life. This is not something these groups had not formed necessarily intentionally. It just happened because pride had creeped into the church. And so to apply this, I want us to test ourselves according to what we see here in the text with three questions. First, do you only associate with people in the church who share a common agenda? Whether it's a common agenda of things that are good and right, missions, discipleship, worship. These are good and right things, but do you only associate with those people? Again, we mentioned last week, do you only associate with people who tell you what you want to hear? Do you only associate with people who uh, have a common preference? Genuinely search your heart this morning and say, goodness, do I need to maybe reach out to some other people in this place and build relationship with others to guard against this? Second question, do you have loyalties to one person in particular? This, again, is a hard one to test. We really need the Holy Spirit to convict us because it doesn't necessarily have to be a leader in, a, in the church that we pledge our loyalty to. Uh, it can just be uh, someone that we like to go to because when we voice our opinion, they tend to agree with us. And again, this is hard to spot. And then thirdly, do you and the people you associate with have a shared hostility for another group? This is not something that we would just necessarily be aware of or admit, but if we were to evaluate our hearts and minds this morning, could this be true of us that we are hostile to others in this church for different reasons? It is a subtle reality in our hearts and minds that we're not often aware of. And so what we must do is search our hearts and our motives this morning We must allow Scripture to speak to us, and where we see that any of these things exist in our life, we must repent. We must go to those that maybe have hurt us or that we have hurt and seek forgiveness and reconciliation. And we must be intentional about meeting the needs of others and knowing the names of others and and encouraging one another and building each other up, rejoicing when others rejoice, weeping when others weep, meeting the needs of everyone in this place. So first we see a request for unity. Secondly, though, we see a reminder this morning. In verses 18 through 25, we see a reminder of Christ's wisdom and power. If you would continue, continue with me in verse 18, it says, For the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? 
Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I hope as we're reading through that, you caught the three words that Paul is using, uh, that he's, he, he's using here as a literary way to help us understand something. The words wisdom, folly, and power. And he's pointing us out to us the wisdom of men, the, the power of men, and the economy of God are really foolishness and weakness. But the view of men, when they look to the economy of God, is quite opposite. And so at the heart of what we see in these verses is this. Salvation is found in Christ alone, not the wisdom of this world. Not man-made religion, not man-made philosophy. It is only in Christ the word of the cross, he says, the message of the gospel. And what does he say about it? To those who do not believe, it's foolishness, it's folly. But for those of us who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and have been saved, we know of its power. The mighty deed that God has done on our behalf to free us from sin and death. And so there are simply two types of people in this world. There are those who have believed in Christ alone for salvation and know of its power, and then there are those who look in on the Christian life in the church and see it as foolishness. Paul here quotes Isaiah 29, verse 13, um, actually verse 14. And what's interesting there in verse 19 when he quotes Isaiah, right before that in Isaiah 13, Isaiah says these famous words, the people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. This is the heart of the issue. We like to talk big, but where are our hearts this morning? The efforts of men are for nothing. And so Paul presses in on this issue. In verse 20, he says, What religious or philosophical system exists that can do what the cross has done? And the answer is, there is nothing. Verse 21, he says, You cannot come to know God through religious efforts or philosophical teachings. If, you, if your belief is by simply going to church and being a religious person and praying and reading the Bible is the way to salvation, let me plead with you this morning that religion is not what saves us. We must look to Christ alone for salvation, believe in Christ alone. Philosophical teachings and our own ideas of what the afterlife is like have no impact on the reality of what is true and right according to God's economy. Then in verse 22, Paul says that Jews and Greeks with their different systems have similar motives. The Jews are more spiritual, the Greeks are more intellectual, but they're both getting it wrong because it's all about self. They are searching for the answer by themselves and looking to themselves. And so in verse 23, he says, what do we do? We preach Christ crucified. The work of Christ on the cross is the only answer to our searching. Christ died in our place. 
He alone made atonement for sin. He alone allows that relationship that was torn between God and man in the garden to be restored. And so we preach this, and we do this knowing full well that as we preach the gospel to a lost and dying world, that there will be some who are offended by the message, and there will be some who see it as folly and nonsense. But we are faithful heralds. And we continue to proclaim Christ. We are not responsible for the response of the listener. We are simply responsible to be faithful to the command of Christ to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. People will see us as foolish and nonsensical. But as we preach, we also believe that there are some who will hear. And they will believe and they will be saved. Not because of the eloquent speech of the preacher, but because of the Spirit moving in their life. And so to those who are called by God, it is the power of salvation and the knowledge of what is true. When you come to faith in Christ, one of the first things you realize is how fallen your worldview was before. And now in Christ, when the truth is made known to you, you see the power and the wisdom of God. The scholars and religions of our day might seem profound, but dear friends, Paul tells us here, the seemingly least significant thought of God is more profound and life-changing than the wisest thought that the wisest man has ever had. Not that God has a least significant thought, but Paul says if he did, it would still be far more profound than any thought that any human has ever had. That is humbling. Paul says, even what seems insignificant in God's creative work, the rising of the sun, the opening of a flower, is far greater greater than the mightiest works of men. We herald the iPhone and the Tesla in our day, and yet these things pale in comparison to the enormous creative beauty of God's creation. The complexity of just a cell alone. And so, what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth is this. He says, Corinth, if you were saved by the power and wisdom of God, and that power and wisdom resides in you, why are you trying to do church in your own power? I just mentioned Tesla. Uh, I'm not sure how you feel about the Tesla car. I know there's differing opinions. Regardless, there are images on the internet that I'm sure you've seen of Teslas, these electric vehicles on the side of the road. Uh, They've run out of power, and they've got a gas-powered generator next to them, and they're plugged in and charging. That's just funny, right? The irony of a car that only needs electric power, and yet you're still relying on the gas. We are prone to this in the Christian life. We say salvation is all of grace. We say that the Christian life is all of grace, and it is. And yet, how often do we revert back to self and say, I've got it. We declare to be electric vehicles, but we go back to the gas every now and then. And the same thing is true for the church. In my first sermon here as your pastor, I mentioned this the pragmatic way of doing church that looks to things like secular business models. And this is not something I've made up. This is a genuine thing where churches, in an attempt to build up the church, will take secular business models 
and the agendas and the methodology and the, the deadlines and the, and the obstacles we have to overcome and all the things we need to do and prioritize and we set it to a schedule and there's all these moving parts and they, they attach Bible verses to it here and there and Christian terminology here and there to make it seem like it's a good thing, but it's ultimately in the power of man. As the church, we do church by the book. And it looks foolish to a lost and dying world. What does that look like? What does it look like to do church by the book? I want, I want to make it very simple. I believe it's this. We gather in covenant community together. Week in and week out. We fellowship with one another. We encourage one another and we build each other up. We pray the word, we sing the word, and we sit under the preaching of the word of God rightly. And then we leave this place. And when we leave this place, we proclaim Christ crucified in our homes and at our jobs and in our neighborhoods and to our families. And guess what happens? People are saved. And we come back to this place and we do it again. And we keep doing those simple things for how long? Until Christ returns. And that's it. And when we start to think about our own ideas and man-made philosophies, we lose sight of that. We must look to the Word of God and Christ alone if we will be unified. Right now, just listen. You can hear the cars going past on 1604. And I promise you, every Sunday when we gather in this place, there are people who drive by and they see your cars and your family and your children gathered in this place and they think to themselves, what fools. And yet, we come together in this place and we proudly say, amen. Second, we've seen a reminder of Christ's wisdom and power in our life. But thirdly and finally, we see a reason for boasting. Look with me at verse 26. Paul says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing, things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who be became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it, is, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We see here a reason for boasting. Paul says, consider your calling, brothers. And the emphasis here in these words is not on self, but rather it is on God's drawing work of lost and dying souls. And Paul tells us here, the drawing of God for people to salvation is unconditional. It is not based on your potential. It is not based on your nationality or your race or your gender. And it's most definitely not based on these, th these three words. It's not based on wisdom and power and the wealth of this world. It is solely based on who God is in his sovereignty. All things that the world deems important in the economy of God mean nothing. The world's standards for what is intellectually and influentially and socially acceptable mean nothing in God's economy. 
Rather, God chooses out of the world what is foolish and weak and low according to the standards of men so that he might make much of himself. And so when we come to faith in Christ, we are admitting our foolishness. We are admitting our weakness. We are admitting our lowly state in the economy of God. So hear this, no matter your background this morning, whether you are a dump truck driver or a world-renowned doctor, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And anyone who believes on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation will be saved. We must look to Christ completely in salvation. And when we do, Paul tells us here in these final verses, we exchange the worldly foolishness for something far greater. Notice it there in the text. We exchange it for the wisdom of God. Again, I mentioned when we come to faith in Christ, our worldview that we once possessed is changed. We know the truth of God and his word and the gospel. Secondly, we receive the righteousness of Christ. In salvation, it is no longer God looking down at us in our sinful state, but when he looks to us, rather he sees Christ's righteousness on our behalf, a righteousness that we do not deserve, that has been given to us simply as a gift in salvation. Thirdly, We gain sanctification in Christ. Christ is making us each and every day more into who he would want us to be. And then finally, Christ is our redemption. We're delivered from sin once and for all. So that, Paul says, if we boast, who do we boast in? We boast in Christ. Christ alone would deserve all the praise and the glory in our lives and in this church. This is what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. He said, For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. All we have is found in him and him alone, boast in Christ. One commentator said of this, he said, it is not through human wisdom, strength, or worldly position that one is saved, but only through God's wise plan and power accomplished through the cross. Again, I want to illustrate this point by looking back to chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 18, Paul says to the church in Corinth, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God. The church in Corinth had lost sight of whose they were. They had turned their attention to men and were drawing their confidence from worldly folly instead of Christ. Paul's message to them and to us this morning is the same. Become a fool to this world. Set aside the things of this world. Set aside the things that the world deems valuable and important and look to Christ alone this morning so that you may know truth and find redemption. As we close, I just want to pose a, a question to you this morning. And that is, have you come to Christ 
and declared your worldly ways to be foolish according to his economy. Have you come to Christ and declared yourself spiritually bankrupt in his economy? And my prayer for you in these moments as we close this time is that you would know that your efforts and your attempts in and of yourself and worldly wisdom and knowledge and philosophy and religion, all of those things mean nothing. And my plea with you this morning is that you would indeed look to Christ. That you would declare yourself for what you are and that is dead in your sins and trespasses. And that you would know this morning that God has made a way to redeem you to himself through the blood of Christ. And that you would indeed believe on the Lord Jesus Christ this morning and be saved. Let's pray.